This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 84 is Jungian analyst and professor of the psychology of religion, Dr. Jenny Yates in Wilmington, North Carolina. She received a Master of Arts in Religion from Yale Divinity School and a doctorate in Religion and Philosophy from Syracuse University. She later went on to Switzerland to train as a Jungian analyst, earning a diploma in analytical psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. She began her career at the University of Virginia Medical School as a psychiatric social worker, where her task was to discern how brain diseases affected the mind. Upon meeting the psychosomatic consultation team, two of whom were Freudian analysts, she assisted them in discerning the relationship between the mind, brain, and body, and moved from the philosophical study to its practical application. After completing her PhD, she taught philosophy and religion for two years at Colgate University, and went on to a full professorship at Wells College in New York, where she chaired the Department of Religion and was a professor for 27 years. While training as a Jungian analyst, she was appointed a visiting associate at Professor Roger Sperry's lab at the California Institute of Technology, known as Caltech, where she taught him the history of philosophical views of the mind-brain relation, and he taught her split-brain research, for which he received a Nobel Prize in 1981. This work became her thesis for graduation from the Jung Institute, where her advisor, was Jung's closest colleague and disciple, C.A. Meyer. Dr. Yates practiced as a Jungian analyst in New York for 10 years and was a faculty member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. From 2012 to 2018, she served as president of the North Carolina Society of Jungian Analysts. Since 2003, she has been a visiting distinguished scholar in the Master of Arts in Liberal Studies Department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where she is a part-time lecturer in the Department of Religion and Philosophy. She is the author of Psyche and the Split Brain, co-editor with Professor Lee W. Bailey of The Near-Death Experience, and editor of the Encountering Jung series volume, Jung on Death and Immortality. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, April 7th, 2021, through the magic of Zoom. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gates. Thank you, Laura. Looking forward to it. I'd like to begin with your book, the book that you selected and edited, Jung on Death and Immortality. It is part of the Encountering Jung series from Princeton University Press. It was published in 1999. And in the acknowledgments, I noticed that you mentioned that the invitation to work on that book came to you the week of Princess Diana's death, which was on August 31st, 1997, and the day before Mother Teresa's death, which was September 5th, 1997, and that the year before you had experienced your own mother's death. And after some research, you realized that Jung had written on death and immortality 
coinciding with the death of the most important people in his life? Well, um, Jung um, started out with his father's death. And in um, thinking about the dreams and how real the presence of um, the dead were to the living, um, Jung looked at the dream as communication um, from the land of the dead. And so part of my interest in doing this is to look at some of the tools that we have as Jungian analysts for dealing with dreams to decipher this question of how the dead communicate with the living. One of the things that Jung uh, dreamed about was his father asking him for advice on marital psychology. Um, this after his father was dead. Mm -hmm. And so Jung took that as a starting point for thinking about how one's life might go on in some form after death because there still might be questions that one has in one's life that needs to be dealt with. Well, Jung was certainly no stranger to life after death. He was involved with seances, and this was all, I think, while he was a medical student. And then his dissertation, of course, was on the so-called occult phenomena. So Jung wrote about death. And as I said, it coincided with the death of the important people in his life. So this volume is actually a collection of Jung's writings on death. It's taken from the collected works, from his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and from his letters. And I was wondering if you were editing this book today, is there anything else you would add considering the publication of Jung's Red Book in 2009 and his Black Books last year? Well, I have given lectures on the Red Book out at the St. Louis um, Jung Society. Mm -hmm. And looking at this um, parallel between the journey to the land of the dead or the land of the unconscious through analysis and all of the symbol systems of the world's religions that have something to teach us about life after death, when one sees the specificity of dreams and images in both the red and the black book, one can see even more deeply the way that this journey into the unconscious parallels the journey to the land of the dead and a return. And you say that the closest thing we have to death is sleep. And so is that why dreams, we can, we can look at maybe death through our dreams? Well, uh, I'm also a religion professor, as you noted in the introduction. And one of the theories of the origin of religion is by an anthropologist, E.B. Tyler. And he 
um, by religious practice was a Quaker. I'll get back to the relevance of that in a minute, but in his work with primal people, his theory of the origin of religion as um, witnessed uh, working with these people was that they had dreams of people who had died mm-hmm. and they then thought this must be the way the dead communicate with the living. And then he theorizes that rituals developed uh, to honor the messages that had come from the dreams. And he called his theory animism, um, which has the same root as anima and animus in the Latin, means to animate or give life to something that might be considered dead. So as um, a Quaker, he obviously would have practiced in silent meditation in a Quaker meeting the belief that if you sit silently and listen, you might hear the inner light of Christ or the Holy Spirit speaking to the group. And a presupposition there is that the spirit can exist outside an individual body. It speaks to the body of a group in the Quaker meeting. So his theory about the origin of religion working with these primal people uh, was that they perceived the spirit as existing outside the body. And that led to all of the beginnings of religion from Tyler's perspective. And if this spirit can exist outside the body, then how is it going to communicate with us? It communicated with dreams. You take that idea all the way. I also taught philosophy and you take that out all the way up through the history of philosophy to Descartes and his famous, I think, therefore I am, um, starts with having a dream of someone who is dead speaking to him. And that makes him doubt everything if he doesn't know whether this is the living or the dead. So whether you're talking about the history of religion or the history of philosophy, both of them have had beginning points at least theoretically, with the land of dreams being our communication from the land of the dead. Well, I'm curious, as a Jungian analyst, how do you look at this? Because as I I was mentioning to you before we started recording that before I became involved with Jung and before I found Jung, I was very involved in the New Age community, in the New Age movement, in the 80s and the 90s. And when I entered into analysis, it reframed or re- made me rethink all of the things that I had been reading about, uh, about things happening outside of me. And I hadn't considered uh, the concepts of projection. And so as a Jungian analyst, how do you look at this? Because I personally am very undecided as to what's really going on here. So if we were to dream about a dead relative, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners can relate to that. Um, My father passed away in 2002, and I still dream about him. So is this symbolic? 
Is this a literal visitation? What would you say from a Jungian analyst's perspective? Well, uh, in addition to being a Jungian analyst, I'm also, as I said, a philosopher. Mm -hmm. And the methodology of philosophy that Jung used is something called phenomenology. And it bridges this question between, is it only subjective or is it objective? So let me make that as as simple as I can for the sake of a, a quick um, comment here. Okay. Um, Edmund Husserl, um, European philosopher who starts phenomenology, uh, says that It's a study of the phenomena, whatever that is, such as dreams, as it is given to consciousness. It is saying that you cannot separate the consciousness of a phenomena from the phenomena. Now, when people ask, is this just subjective or is this really objective, they're still back in the Cartesian dualism of the Mm -hmm. split between subject and object. Phenomenology bridges those two things and says that it is impossible to separate the person having the experience from the phenomena they're experiencing. Now, Jung was a phenomenologist, and so this either-or question is really um, a philosophical question at base. Am I making sense to you? Yes, yes. Every time I have a dream, I still, of um, a dead relative, I still go through, in spite of knowing this phenomenology, I still go through. Is that person trying to get a message through to me? Okay. Or as... um, Jung says sometime, is that the complex of the mother or father within me? And Jung went back and forth on this question when he first started studying the um, seances when he was uh, a medical school student. His Mm -hmm. cousin was doing the seances. Um, He was very skeptical. This is nothing but a psychological complex. And by the end of his life that you read about in some of the letters that I've anthologized in the book, he said, I'm not so sure anymore. And so I think he sometimes forgot the philosophical method in going back and forth. It's a both and rather than an either or. Um, I was doing a little class recently on Zoom for our continuing ed or Uh, lifelong learning here at the uh, University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And I had a woman basically ask me that question on Zoom, and her husband had recently died, and she had um, seen him standing there in the dream. And essentially what she was trying to say, is he really communicating with me? And intuitively, I responded to her, Uh, in a way that I had not thought through before, was that she had one foot in the land of the dead and one foot in the land of the living. Now, after the Zoom session and that kind of spontaneous comment to her, 
um, I realize that that is that is the way it is. It's not simply I'm out here in the conscious world and they're there in the uh, land of the dead, but somehow even the living have one foot in the land of the dead and one foot in the land of the living when they have a dream. And that's how I deal with that. Why is it the case that that, if we just take that as an example, that that is not her husband as an internal figure, an inner figure of hers, not communicating, but interacting with her. So it was a dream, right? It wasn't a vision. Oh, it was a a dream when she was waking up in the morning, they're hypnagogic and hypnopompic dreams. One, you're half awake, half asleep when you're going to sleep. Mm -hmm. And one, when you're waking up half awake and half asleep, she was waking up. So she's literally was half asleep and half awake. And she responded to me, I know I should let him go. Um, We do have the phenomena that sometimes, um, partners, close relatives uh, die with uh, within a short time after those who have dead or have just recently died. And so I, I think more and more after giving her that spontaneous comment that it's not just the question of is the object really speaking, but is the subject already partly in the land of the dead? Um, let me give you um, an example that led to my writing the near-death experience book okay. uh, that addresses what you're asking. Um, the um, dream that I had before deciding to write that book, except an invitation for it, um, was that I was going through uh, I was going through a cave and I heard um, a voice in the dream saying um, that it's easier to do it now than after the funeral. And the message was that I was to place a chair of light outside the mouth of the cave. Now, where does such a message come from? At the time I was teaching in New York, was unaware that um, a next door neighbor who had lived beside me from the time I was five years old till I went to college had died that night. My mother called me the next morning after I had this dream and told me, that the neighbor had died. Mm -hmm. Now, question is, how can that just be a part of my subjective consciousness? I know that I was contemplating whether to accept the invitation to write the book on the near-death experience and that several of the phenomena, such as the cave and the light and so forth, were Uh, linked to the near-death experience, but I had no way of knowing that she had died that night. Mm -hmm. And so in the land of dreams, somehow we have access to messages 
that are beyond just our subjective complexes. There was no subjective complex there. Uh, that was actual death uh, 800 miles away, and I didn't know that she had been ill. So you are accessing not only the personal unconscious when we dream, but also the collective unconscious. Correct, correct. The One of the things that I discuss um, in the introduction to Jung's writings on um, death and immortality is the whole question of in death um, and in our synchronistic encounters with someone who has died, such as the example I just gave you, mm -hmm. that somehow the psyche transcends space and time. And so Jung's comments are that space and time are a part of the conscious mind. And when we get to the collective unconscious, then we inner synchronistic experiences that are not bound by space and time. And so um, as I comment in the introduction at the time, since um, Einstein was living uh, in Switzerland along with Jung, mm -hmm. that Jung and Einstein had dinner together several times. And Jung said that, um, Einstein's theory of relativity of space and time started him off thinking about the relativity of space and time in relationship to death. And so to for those people listening to the podcast who aren't familiar with the concept of synchronicity, synchronous, meaning happening at the same time, chronos as the god of time. And so it happens connected through meaning rather than through cause and effect. And cause and effect presupposes the uh, subject-object duality that leads to so many questions, is it this or is it that? But when you transcend the subject-object causality and get synchronicity, you're in a quantum world of reality. Uh, rather than in the Newtonian physics. The dream that you talked about, that you had about the cave, that is all discussed in your chapter in the book, The Near-Death Experience, A Reader, that you co-edited with Dr. Bailey. It's in chapter 10, titled Being of Light, Dreaming the Vision Onward. And that chapter is, you say, a summary of your research on how common archetypal themes in literature and your own dreams relate to the phenomenon of the being of light in near-death experiences. And we'll get to that in the second half of this episode when we discuss that book. But going back to what you were just saying about Jung and Einstein and synchronicity, your volume, Jung on Death and Immortality, has different selections that cover all of these key themes and the relativity of space and time in death and the afterlife is one of them. So I was wondering if you would say a little bit about Jung's views on the afterlife. Well, uh, one of the um, 
essays excerpted in the anthology is Concerning Rebirth, where he goes through the different possibilities through the world's religions about some kind of life after death. And in those, he discusses things like the Hindu um, concept of the transmigration of souls. Um, the Hindus believe that there is a soul, it's called Atman, which is in Sanskrit is also the word for the breath, that continues as one migrates through souls in the course of one's reincarnation. This stands in contrast to the Buddhist concept of no soul, uh, on Atman, no soul. Mm -hmm. So the Buddhist, the distinction about life after death between Hindus and Buddhists is whether there's actually an entity called soul that passes along in reincarnation. For the Buddhist and the concept of the Buddhist Tibetan Book of the Dead and Jung's commentary is, is something else. I've anthologized there, but um, the karma is reincarnated. That is, the consequences of your behavior um, linger on. And so Jung discusses, as he's going through these different types or views of rebirth, the uh, distinction between the Hindu and the Buddhist. He also has uh, an essay that's accepted there on resurrection. Uh, we've just had Easter. Yes. And some friends had commented to Young that he had, they had never read anything about what he thought about Jesus' resurrection. And so one of the essays there is his views about resurrection. And he talks about uh, resurrection in the, um, both in the concerning rebirth and on, on resurrection, the way in which some people have an experience of eternity in time through ritual. And there he discusses the Catholic concept of the mass where you actually have personal transformation as you have in the transformation or the transubstantiation of substances in the mass. So he goes into ritual as a way that even though we have an experienced life after death, we go through a ritual in the religion with its teachings about life after death. So those are some of the things that Jung says in those two essays. In his letters, which are also accepted in the book, mm -hmm. um, he says that um, as someone reaches the time of death, that he does everything he can to encourage the belief in life after death. And he's talking about it, I think, basically from a pragmatic standpoint there. He gives an example of that when he says that after his wife died, I believe she died of stomach cancer. After his wife, Emma, died, he dreamed about her continuing to finish her work on the Holy Grail um, 
And so that was an example that of his believing that from the dream about his wife continuing his her work after death, that somehow simultaneously the dreams are communicating from the land of the dead and that life after death is a time that we might continue our work that we started here. Um, those are some of the things he says in the collection of essays in the book. My question about death and life after death and reincarnation is, and again, this is my stubbornness and my hardheadedness and maybe my science background. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about how can the soul exist after death yet also be reincarnated? So for instance, the example you had given earlier about the woman in the class seeing her dead husband appear to her. So if he had passed away and been reincarnated, how could he still exist in that form and appear to her? Well, if you go to an essay in the near-death experience book by Sojal Rinpoche, yes. who has written a modern equivalent of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's called the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, he points out that the Tibetan Book of the Dead, called the Bardo Fall, um, addresses the 49-day period between death and reincarnation. So from a Buddhist perspective, and that's as specific as you get in any of the world's religions, it would not be um, simultaneous. What Jung says about this in the essays that I anthologized in um, Jung on Death and Immortality is that for a while, the dead linger. And that that's when those who are grieving still have communication. And he says, it's dangerous if you linger there too long. Mm -hmm. He says the um, dead, so to speak, entangle themselves in our sympathetic nervous system. That's about as bio biological as Jung gets on in relationship to your biology kind of question. But he's warning that this intermediate state um, is temporary. Uh, if you go to something like um, Jesus and his resurrection, I talk about this uh, in my article in um, The Being of Light in the Near-Death Experience book, um, when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb um, and she is wondering why the body's not there if someone stole it, mm -hmm. and then she speaks to the person she takes to be the gardener to find out where the body is if it's been moved, and Jesus speaks to her. Mary did not recognize him immediately, but after he spoke to her, she recognized him. And this period, intermediate period then, is when he appears to his disciples gathered in the upper room. So 
even in the Christian scripture, there's an intermediate period between death and resurrection. I suppose I was wondering more about years later, or these popular psychics that are out there who claim they can uh, access or go out there and find in the etheric realm, your dead relatives and get messages from them. Well, of course, that was what Jung was dealing with when he started his work, when he was a medical student. Yes. And asking and watching the cousin in the perform the seances and claiming that it was their grandfather who was speaking. That was the question that started all of Jung's contemplations on is this objective or is this subjective? Um, I cannot make a judgment uh, about psychics or anyone else's claims uh, to communicate with the dead. Um, I can share with you uh, another example, personal example. Yeah. Um, when my mother died, um, my mother had cancer. She hospice was visiting her at home. Uh, and so she had been in a coma uh, for several days prior to dying. And so um, the night before she died, or the night, I, yes, the night before she died, I dreamed of a white horse that started running. Okay, so the next morning, she woke up from the coma briefly, mm -hmm. and she said, I do not know how I got started running, and she died. Mm -hmm. Now, as a Jungian analyst, there are all kinds of access to this. Symbolically, the mare, same root as the mother. Mm -hmm. um, in the book of Revelation, in Christian scripture, uh, the white horse is a symbol of resurrection. Um, but there was some kind of whatever you, in, however you interpret it symbolically, the synchronicity of my dreaming of this horse getting started running, the next morning my mother waking up and saying, I do not know how I started running. That to me says that there is some kind of bridge between what's communicated to us in this land beyond space and time in dreams and in death or near death. Maybe we could now segue into the near death experience book. Okay. You gathered together two types of readings, cases and interpretations, and it includes chapters by Jung and von Franz, but also by Dr. Raymond Moody, who I believe coined the term near-death experience, and yes. also experiencers Daniel Brinkley and Betty Eady. So would you tell us how this book came about? Well, there's the objective way and the 
uh, deeper way it comes about. Um, there was a Plato conference being held by the philosophy department at Cornell University, which is the epitome of uh, positivism, analytical skepticism, and so forth. Um, so I was teaching at Wells College, which originally was the sister college of Cornell. And oh, okay. as, a, as a courtesy to me, as a fellow philosophy professor, uh, I was invited to give a presentation on um, Plato's forms and Jung's archetypes as they relate to the near-death experience. And Lee Bailey, who was a professor at Ithaca College nearby, was asked to give a presentation at the same conference. It turned out that the editor of Rutledge Press was there, and she asked the two of us to edit an anthology. That's objectively how it came about. Um, in terms of my history, when I looked back over it, that led to um, which essays I included in the anthology is all the way back to my work when I was a psychiatric and neurosurgical social worker at UVA Med School Hospital that was between my master's degree and PhD. Raymond Moody was a philosophy student in phenomenology at UVA. Oh, was he? Okay. At the same time, now I didn't know him when he was a philosophy student, but he was there at the same time I was doing psychiatric and medical social work. So um, Moody, after he finished PhD in philosophy, enrolled in the med school. So our paths crossed, although I did not know Moody, because one of the medical school professors, George Ritchie, was one of Raymond Moody's professors. And he was one of the professors that I had a referral from doing medical and psychiatric social work. He talked about his near-death experience, and that was the first time Moody heard about it. So it was only in retrospect that I put all these pieces together and collected um, an article from Raymond Moody's latest book. I also asked for an essay from George Ritchie recounting his original uh, near-death experience uh, that is anthologized. The third person in the anthology that was a part of my chance encounter at UVA was Ian Stevenson. Now, in terms of your interest in scientific verification of things, Stevenson <laughs> would interest you. Okay. Um, Ian Stevenson was chair of the psychiatry department when I was doing psychiatric social work. And um, he after he retired as a med school professor of psychiatry, started doing research on reincarnation. And so he's the world's expert on empirical studies, verifying or falsifying accounts of reincarnation. So he would have med students go out and check to um, 
see whether the claim to have remembered a previous life by someone in India, for example, mm-hmm. was or was not the case. So I figured that he probably had moved. It had been some 20 years since uh, my encounter with him, but I figured that he had done some near-death experience research. In fact, he had. Uh, And so Ian Stevenson summarizes the scientific literature, the medical journals and so forth on uh, the near-death experience and medical verifications, whether these people uh, were actually dead or not, and the empirical data from medical records of what they recall, uh, as well as uh, people from other cultures who have had a near-death experience, and whether the phenomenology is the same as someone uh, in the culture in the U.S. with uh, a different religious background, such as Christianity, may have recalled to see how much was cultural influence. Mm-hmm. So those are the people from my history who came together many years later when I anthologized this book. Dr. Stevenson's chapter is chapter 13, titled Near-Death Experiences, Relevance to the Question of Survival After Death. And would you Tell us what his conclusions were. Well, he simply um, gives, as a good scientist does, he simply gives us the facts um, with reports of case studies. And uh, the conclusion, uh, he doesn't make a general conclusion, which would be an inappropriate kind of scientific hypothesis, but he does point out the cases where uh, this um, near-death experience could not have been learned. In other words, people are saying in their skepticism of the near-death experience, this is what they were taught or this is their religion and what they were taught growing up and so forth. But uh, with the empirical research from Stevenson, there are cases where it simply was not learned from the culture or from the religion. And that's an important statement from a medical school professor. Another person that um, we looked at was uh, Melvin Morse, who was a pediatric cardiologist and he deals with uh, children's near-death experience. And that's another take on whether something could be learned or not. So I looked at some of his reports of children who had near-death experience, heart attacks, resuscitated, etc. cetera. Um, and often they spoke in symbols. Now, when scientists, some scientists would look at this, they would take symbol literally and say, that's not the same as the near-death phenomenology. But in fact, if you understood symbolic function, you read the meaning of the symbol, not the literal fact, then it was the same phenomenology whether a child had been exposed to the particular teachings of a religion or not. Sogyal Rinpoche's chapter, he mentioned something very interesting 
there, which I'd like to ask you about. I'm looking for it in my notes. Okay. He said, he points out that near-death experience survivors do not cross the point of no return. And in the beginning of his chapter, uh, it asks the question, is the near-death experience more about life than it is about death? So the truth is, with all of these, and I've met Daniel Brinkley, I've attended his lectures, none of these near-death experiencers cross that point. They've all come back. So you can say, well, they were biologically dead, they were technically dead, for extended periods of time, and then they came back to life. I'm not disputing that. What my concern is that what Rinpoche pointed out, none of these people have crossed that point of no return. So what we don't know is the experience of the people who have. Would you say a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, So it's uh, Sojal Rinpoche was trying to point out that we don't just say um, these people have died and returned, but that it is a near-death experience, not a death experience. So that's why it's called a near-death experience. And so um, he does point out some of the parallel phenomenology in this time leading up to death that you would find in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, such as lights. What color are there lights? Um, Is it white, yellow, green, or blue? So you have parallel accounts in the um, near-death experience phenomenology of people seeing these various colored lights, which correspond to the symbolism of the light and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Does it prove these people have died? No, they haven't. Um, They are simply near death. And so we can learn a lot because as in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you are to have this read to you as you are dying to help guide you. And so the near-death experience would have the same phenomena. Let me tell you about my encounter with uh, a Tibetan monk in relationship to your questions. Okay. Um, I mentioned a little bit about it in um, my essays in the anthologies, but I don't think I mentioned this particular part. When the Dalai Lama was coming to speak at Cornell University, his monks for two weeks were there preparing a colored sand mandala in preparation for his visit in the Johnson Art Museum. And so I took my students down about halfway through the mandala to observe their meditative colored sand mandalas. Mm And um, that night, um, I dreamed of a scythe, as in Father Time's scythe, uh, opening up a graveyard. Now, I didn't, didn't know what to make of this. And so a week later, when I went down to see the finished mandala, 
um, I spoke to the monk who had been making the mandala, who was taking a tea break. And I told him that I had watched the monks in Recon, Switzerland, when I had attended the Wheel of Time ritual led by the Dalai Lama a decade before. And I told him I watched the monks making the mandala. And he said, I was the monk making the mandala. Now, this is 10 years hence Mm -hmm. on a different continent. And so then I told him about the dream I had a week before having seen the half-finished mandala that he was doing. There were Tibetan letters in the middle of the mandala, and I do not know the Tibetan language. Mm -hmm. But I told him I had dreamed of the scythe that opens a graveyard, and he says those are the Tibetan letters for the God who terminates death. He said to me, you must have lived before. And I said, Jung would call that the collective unconscious. When I mentioned that I had met a group of Tibetan Buddhist monks 10 years ago, they are the monks that tour for the Dalai Lama's monastery. They come to the United States on the Mystical Arts of Tibet tour, and they make these sand mandalas. It takes them usually around four days, and they do them at universities and at museums. And they began this tour back in the 90s. So I wonder if that was the Mystical Arts of Tibet tour that you saw making that mandala at Cornell University? Well, the um, Dalai Lama, when he came to Cornell, um, I did not realize at the time was looking for a place to house his monks that were coming from Namgal Monastery in Dharamsala, India. And what happened was he chose the house across the street from where I was practicing as a Jungian analyst. And that's where he settled five of his monks who would then participate in the South Asian program uh, in uh, at Cornell University. Okay. So um, this led to a decade while I was practicing as an analyst across the street of my dreaming when they were having rituals across the street, I would dream the ritual and then I would go to Snowline Publications, which was mm-hmm. in Ithaca, oh, yeah. and ask what to read to understand the symbolism. And I would uh, get, for example, uh, you don't need to read a book. We're doing the Medicine Buddha ritual across yes. the street. Would you like to come? Yeah. So for 10 years, I attended Tibetan uh, rituals across the street. So your dreams led me to the rituals. And so what would you say was happening there that you were dreaming what they were doing without any conscious knowledge of it? Well, Jung said that um, the symbol system of all the world's mythologies and and religions are in our unconscious. I did not know until I attended the Wheel of Time ritual in Switzerland that that included ritual. But as a professor of religion, I know that ritual is the enactment of mythology and mythology is a narrative collection of symbols. So it made sense but I had never experienced being called to ritual from the unconscious. 
in the article that I do um, on the Being of Light in the Near-Death Experience book, one of the tools that I have developed that bridges my split brain work and my work at the Young Institute is that I have discovered, and someone else may have discovered it before, and I rediscovered it, but whatever, um, I have found a parallel processing between words, and I mean the etymological roots of words across languages that would be processed in the left hemisphere, and images in the dream that correspond to the history of the evolution of language. And so I note this when I, for example, look at, I told you about the dream of placing a chair of light that led to the near-death experience book. And so the etymology of the word chair, as it crosses languages, gives you both cathedral, throne, and flesh. So I didn't know what to make of a chair at the time of the dream, but if you're placing flesh of light, that is the um, subtle body, the resurrection body, the being of light body, the glorified body, the garment of light of Isis, all of those things. But anyway, my interest in this parallel processing between image and language uh, came from my research work with Dr. Sperry on the split brain at Caltech, which happened in the middle of my training as an analyst. And I then, by the way, by way of the I Ching, and I combined those two for my thesis to graduate as an analyst from the Young Institute in Switzerland. Let's talk a little bit about, as we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to mention a little bit about your book. This was the first book that you wrote that was the work that you did for your thesis titled Psyche and the Split Brain. For the listeners that are not familiar with the anatomy of the brain, our brains consist of two hemispheres, the right and the left, and they're connected by something called the corpus callosum. So in the individuals, the split brain individuals that you studied, there was a disconnection between the two hemispheres. Is that correct? Dr. Sperry had recommended to the surgeon, Joseph Bogan, uh, for patients who had intractable epilepsy, that is to say, things like 40 grand mal seizures a day, mm -hmm. that he split the um, brain in half in order to stop the spread of ep epilepsy from one hemisphere of consciousness, if it were localized, it would be a petite or a small seizure. And if it crossed the corpus callosum, it would knock out both sides and cause a grand mal seizure. So when the corpus callosum was split based on Dr. Sperry's uh, research on monkeys, he was originally trained as an anatomist, uh, it stopped the spread of epilepsy. And that's how he uh, won the Nobel Prize in medicine. And from that, having split the brain, we then could, for the first time, realize the cognitive function of the two hemispheres. Um, enough said for the time being. So the left hemisphere is the main one that's used for processing information and the right or, one, no? 
Oh, yes, information and language, specificity of language. And language. And the right one... Visual, spatial. And so the, the land of dreams. So when one is functioning, such as our conscious hemisphere and language hemisphere, awareness of specificity and sense data and so forth, then the right is simultaneously processing, but not consciously. And so then the dreams can show us. So my interest in writing, when I wrote Dr. Sperry, I had just planned to go out there and observe, Mm -hmm. but I was interested in how is the um, unconscious and conscious mind related to the two brain hemispheres This came out of my whole history of research with neurosurgeons and neurologists and psychiatrists and um, years of teaching the philosophy of the mind-brain relation at Wells College and so forth. How are these two things related? Mm -hmm. You get people who are strict scientists who say it's nothing but brain. Uh, It's objective, it's empirical, it's brain. And you get Jungians who focus on the symbols and the dreams and the unconscious. And I wanted to know how to bridge these two things. And that's that's how it all started. Yeah, I want to know how to bridge those two things too. So something that I found interesting is you said that when you showed symbolic images to the right hemisphere of a split brain individual, they reported seeing images with parallel symbolic meaning rather than the actual image. And that that is the basis of archetypes, which are patterns of symbols. You have picked the central finding from my research that shows very good perception on your part. (laughs) Uh, The, that is the basis of synchronicity because things are connected through meaning Uh, rather than through the objective cause and effect. And so if you look at symbols that have the same meanings, they form an archetype, such as the archetypal mother or the archetype of the child and so forth. So when what had happened is scientists thought and published that the right hemisphere of the brain was less evolutionarily advanced than the left because when they showed these split brain patients something, they wouldn't say anything. So either they concluded the right hemisphere can't speak or it's just less evolutionarily advanced. And I thought, this is absurd. I've got to go out there and figure out what's going on. And so if what I found when Dr. Sperry gave me the task of reading 20 years worth of brain research in the Caltech library and in the raw data in his lab, I found that the scientists were showing stick figures to the right hemisphere. Now, among other things, I've taught aesthetics and a stick figure is a conceptualization of an image and the left hemisphere processes concepts and the right hemisphere does the 
visual spatial image. And so the scientists didn't know the distinction between the problem was the stimulus they were giving the patient, not the patient's brain. And so what I did was knowing that fairy tales are the cultural residue of mythology and symbols, um, I picked out children's fairy tale books and showed them pictures of fairy tales, simple things like Rumpelstiltskin and Little Red Riding Hood and things everybody would know. And then asked the right hemisphere of the brain to simply identify the image they were seeing. These are, again, illustrations in children's books. And then the right hemisphere started speaking. And so when I had reported every day at the end of the day to Dr. Sperry, the research I had done, and he said, um, what kind of voodoo is going on in my lab? And so he had not had the right hemisphere of the brain speaking before and wanting to know what I was doing. And so that's just when I discovered that the right hemisphere of the brain understands the meaning of the symbol, not the specific object that it is symbolic of, which is what the left hemisphere observes. And so this to me was just the clue to the whole shebang. And then what would you say about this general conception out there that men are more left-brained and women are more right-brained? Well, back in the day when I was um, teaching philosophy of the mind at Wells College, uh, Julian Jaynes, a Princeton psychologist, published The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And he said that women's brains were less evolutionarily advanced than men's. All kinds of stuff was going on. So again, that's part of what I wanted to go out there and find out where's this data coming from about men and women's brains. And it turned out, according to Dr. Sperry, that Julian James had asked for data from his lab, uh, which had um, been used without permission in that book, and that Julian James didn't have access to the raw data of which subjects were men and which were women. So part of what was happening was people's prejudices were getting, scientists' prejudices were getting read into the interpretation of data. So we had to go back and get the data. Now, one of the distinctions that I found um, between men and women's brains, which I was interested in, again, because I was teaching all women, uh, was that men's brains are more lateralized than women's. Lateralized means that you could focus in one, but not both at the same time. And that has a whole history, which would take us another session to deal with in terms of when you reach your brain, lat again, um, lateralizes until you reach puberty and women reach puberty first. And so uh, their brain hasn't lateralized as much, which means that they can move back and forth between hemispheres more easily than men. So that's the raw data and the findings. Uh, to summarize two years in five minutes. Yes, yes. And there was something else about, I can't find it in my notes now, about women 
mature earlier than men? Women, women reach puberty earlier. And because the brain is lateral, lateralizing, that is to say, you can still move back and forth mm-hmm. up until you reach puberty. And I get this from Dr. Sperry, okay. um, that with women reaching puberty before men as a general rule, then they reach puberty before the lateralization occurs. I think in terms of evolution, it's because women have had to multitask, take care of baby and cook supper and, you know, all at the same time. Um, But it gives women an edge in moving between hemispheres rather than making them less whatever. Uh, So again, this, Getting back to the data and the problems was one of the things that interested me in going out there. And as we come to the end of our time together today, Dr. Yates, I'd like for you to, if you would, tell us about how when you were a professor at Wells College, which is in upstate New York in Ithaca, you lived near... Carl Sagan. Yes. Um, My goodness, Uh, that is hard to do a wrap up because that's a whole other subject. But let me. Well, maybe we can have you back for another episode because there's still a lot more to talk about. So if you could give us a little teaser on that. Just an intro? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I was invited to dinner with the archetype who, uh, the archetype, heavenly <laughs> days. It, it turns out to be an archetype with the architect who um, had built Carl Sagan's house. Okay. Anyway, at that dinner party, the conversation was what Carl Sagan had put into the rocket, I think it was Voyager, I can't remember now, that was being sent to outer space in case anybody was out there that wanted to know what life was like on Earth the name of the man and the woman whose name was in there, uh, the Bach record, etc. That was just a dinner party. Um, after that, I was um, on my way out to Caltech to do brain research, and I was invited to speak at the Los Angeles Young Society about the brain research. And a man and a woman invited me to Christmas dinner The woman was an analyst at the Institute, and so I went to dinner with them. And for whatever reason, um, I told them about this dinner conversation. It turned out probably the reason I told them is that the man um, was one of the guys who had helped develop the rocket at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Okay. And the man and the woman that I was having dinner with was the man and the woman whose name was in that rocket. And so then I went back and forth between teaching and Caltech and Zurich. So anyway, I'm back home in Ithaca, New York, and a package comes to my door with the wrong house number on it. Mm -hmm. It was a difference between 10 and 100 a digit off. So I went to take the package to the right house number. And it turned out 
that the house that the package belonged to that had been mistakenly or synchronistically left at my door was Carl Sagan's house. I had just moved to Ithaca and I didn't know that he was my day neighbor. Oh. He, he had recently died. So that's the question you're asking me about. He had recently died. Yes. The package was addressed to him or no? No, to tell you the truth, I don't remember to whom it was addressed. I just remember the house number being 10 or 100 with the digits off. But anyway, his wife still lived there. Uh, I just saw her in a documentary. Wow. Okay. (laughs) My goodness. Uh, Yeah, this episode has blown me away. Uh, Is there anything else before we wrap up that you would like to add? Uh, No, just thank you for your great questions and your perception. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Yates, and we look forward to having you back again soon. Okay. Please visit the website, speakingofyung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. It will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungi and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to Dr. Diana Walsh-Pasolka, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.